Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. This is where projects come to life. Our showrooms are designed to inspire with the latest products from top brands, curated in an inviting, hands-on environment, and a team of industry experts to support your project. We'll be there to make sure everything goes as planned, from product selection to delivery coordination. At Ferguson Bath, Kitchen, and Lighting Gallery, your project is our priority. Find great brands like Monogram at your local showroom or visit us online at ferguson.com build. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, we have Michael Shermer and Philip Goff on the podcast. Michael is the founding publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American and a presidential fellow at Chapman University, where he teaches Skepticism 101. He's the author of New York Times bestsellers, Why People Believe Weird Things, The Believing Brain, and Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia. Goff is an associate professor in philosophy at Central European University in Budapest. His main research focus is trying to explain how the brain produces consciousness. His first book, which was published by Oxford University Press, is called Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. Golf is currently working on a book on consciousness aimed at a general audience. Guy, it's so great to chat with you today. All right. Let's nice get to into be here. You know, this is, yeah, this is not some light topics here, you know? Uh, <laughs> but uh, hopefully we'll have solved some of the deepest mysteries of humanity. Well, not just humanity. It's deepest mysteries of the universe today. So let's start off by giving a little context for this chat. Michael, you wrote an article for Scientific American called, Will Science Ever Solve the Mysteries of Consciousness, Free Will, and God? And in that article, you contended that not only consciousness, but also free will and God are these sort of final mysteries. Can you explain a little bit what counts, like what criteria, you know, does it count yeah. to be a final mystery? Yeah. So, um, but just by way of background, so it's a monthly, one of my monthly columns. So I, I've done uh, over 200 of these and every month I got to come up with something new. Uh, you know, I can't just debunk astrology every month in tarot card readers. That gets old pretty quick. So I've had in my head a long time, this idea of the, of the Mysterians back when I met Martin Gardner. Uh, in the late 80s. Uh, he called himself a Mysterian. I was like, what's, what's a Mysterian? So as he articulated it, there's, there's certain things that science could never prove or even really test because they're conceptual problems that are bounded by language and 
and he put God and, and free will in, in, in that category. And Martin, you know, he was the longtime columnist in Scientific American before me for 25 years. And he's really one of the founders of the modern skeptical movement, uh, which is generally also associated with atheism. And yet he was a theist or he called himself a fideist in uh, James's uh, pragmatism. And that, as James explained it, it, there's certain issues where if you can't prove it one way or the other, like God or free will, it's okay to just go ahead and make the leap for whatever works for you. So Martin would argue, for example, I think the atheists have slightly better arguments than the theists do, but you know we can't determine it one way or the other. So I choose to believe in God because it works for me. I'm not trying to claim anything. I can't prove it. I'm just saying that's what I believe at full, you know, full stop. Anyway, so I've had that in the back of my mind for a long time. So when I wrote this column, I thought, yeah, yeah, okay. So you know, consciousness is famously the hard problem. And uh, Steven Pinker had just written about this, and I just read, you know, his new book, Enlightenment Now, where he talks about the hard problem of consciousness as a conceptual problem, not a scientific problem. That is, but here we have to define specifically what we mean by the hard problem, because it's a little more complex than I made it out to be in my column. That is, what it feels like to be something, or what it is to be something. And now I know it's more complex than that, but, you know, the problem of other minds, like, I can't know what it's like to be you. My little homunculus in my head can't leap over into yours to see what you're like on the screen of your mind. You know, this is not how it works. So that could never be solved by science, what it feels like to be something else. I can only know, you know, in an experiential way, what it feels like to be me, and that's it. I can imagine what it's like to be you through mind reading, or, uh, or I can imagine what it's like to be a bat, you know, with echolocation or something by getting in a closet and talking to the wall and see, oh, I can feel it bouncing off or something like that. But that doesn't really mean I know what it's like to be a bat anyway. So. Uh, that's why I threw that one in there. And then, um, well, Michael, and then free will, Michael, yeah. hold on a second. Uh, before you go through all of them, uh, I want to just back up. I just wanted you to provide the context and then we'll go in into each one individually Yeah, as a package. Um, and before we go into them, I did want to step back a moment and ask you both a question about argumentation and reasoning as the route to truth. Do you both think that is the ultimate route to truth or even the only Root to truth. I think that's an important discussion to have when we have this sort of mm-hmm. discussion. Absolutely. I mean, if, if there is another route to truth, it's, it's not one I know about. I mean, well, what about experiential? Uh, ex- well, experience. Surely oh, you have experience. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I guess my starting point is there are three, perhaps three sources of information about the world. One, perhaps the most familiar, is experiments and observation. Um, you know, the scientific method. But I think we have another source of information about the world, namely the reality of consciousness, the immediate awareness of, of one's own conscious experience. So, you know, even if we, if we had a theory, for example, that could account for all the data of observation and experiments, you know, the grand unified theory, but it couldn't account for the reality of consciousness, I think that would be thereby falsified because we know that consciousness exists from our own case, from nothing is more evident than the realities of our feelings and experiences. So I'd say that they're the two main sources of data. And, you know, so some people think of the scientific method as, well, we just do observation experiments. In my view, we need to be a bit more expansive. We need to take what we know about the world from observation and experiments, but also the reality of consciousness as we immediately know it, and somehow find a way of putting the two together and that's notoriously very difficult to do. But, that, you know, I think that's, that, that's how I see the, the project. And, of course, the third source is reasoning, logic, the law of non-contradiction, mathematical, logical reasoning. So, so those three things, I think, would be in my yeah, view. 
That's a perfect uh, articulation of it. I would agree uh, that a public exchange of ideas is really the only way to get out of our own heads. So for example, by way of background, I have an invitation to go to Costa Rica to spend Are five days doing high uh, to doing ayahuasca. Well, I don't know if I don't even know if I want to do this because oh. apparently you have to keep your guts out for for several hours a day to get the full experience. I should have let you finish your sentence. <laughs> <laughs> but the the invitation comes from a fellow named Graham Hancock, who is sort of what we would skeptics call one of these alternative archaeologists. You know, he thinks the pyramids were built by these advanced advanced civilization that lived twenty thousand years ago and so on. But anyway, he he's kind of into a spiritual type of truth and that. He knows for sure that this other spiritual world exists. It's another dimension or something. And the way to access it through the doors of perception, as it were, is through ayahuasca. And then if only I would do this, then I would know his truth about this spirit world. And the problem with that, in addition to the not wanting to puke for several days, several hours a day while I get to this other world, is that let's say I do that and I suddenly return and say, I was wrong. There is this other world. I'm not a materialist anymore. I'm now a dualist or whatever. And I write a column in Scientific American saying, I've discovered this new truth. And what I point to for you, instead of a data set experiment or something, I point to you the ayahuasca and say, here, you drink the tea and you'll see it yourself. And I don't think that can get us out of our heads. I'm just putting my truth into your head through this artificial way of creating this other reality. And it's still not clear, you know, whether it's just all in the head or there is some other place to go. So at some point, we have to get out of our heads. And in a public way, you, you or anybody can see what I'm pointing to. And if you can't do that, then I think we're not doing science. Look, I want to thank you both for giving that really uh, elucidating response to my question. But I do have a question in response to that, Michael, because I wonder, like, what if the ultimate truth of reality happens to be something that is incomprehensible to humans or does not coincide with your rational facilities. So what if like, okay, let's say you die someday. Well, you will die someday. But say after, after, sorry to break the news to you. (laughs) When that happens, what if you discover, you know, there is something, it's nothing that you ever could have imagined or predicted based on the limited cognitive faculties that you evolved or not evolved. I guess we'll discuss God in a second. But do you see what I'm saying? What I'm saying is Mm -hmm. like, how do you, like, why are you so sure that like your rationality trumps the experience? I'm not sure. Um, And it's entirely possible that I could wake up in some other place after my death. That's okay. I'm fine. I'm open to that uh, possibility. (laughs) But that, that doesn't mean I can state in any assertive way that this could be true. I just don't know. So in in skepticism, the default position is the null hypothesis. What you just described is, is we assume is not true until proven otherwise. Now, so the problem here is, let's say this happens and I, I wake up in this other place. How can I come back and communicate with you or anyone that, you know, I've been to the other side and I've seen it. It's great. And of course, this is what people who have near death experiences tell us. And yet, some. here's the problem yeah. of external validation. Yes, I'm not yeah. all. The problem of external validation, again, I can't tell the difference between, this is what I describe in my book, Heavens on Earth, between, say, even Alexander's passages in his book, Proof of Heaven, of this trip he took to heaven, and then the opening pages of Sam Harris's book, Waking Up, in which he talks about this trip he took on, I think it was ecstasy or, or MDMA. To me, the narratives sound the same. One took drugs, one had you know, a brain experience while in a coma, and the narratives sound the same to me. And the same thing with reading Oliver Sacks' books. In his memoir, he talks about dropping acid in the 60s and the fantastic trips he took. 
And to me, they all sound the same. So how can we validate, get out of our heads and get some external validation, whether it's all just in our heads or some of them are actually real? Yeah, I mean, I kind of broadly in agreement with what Michael's saying with reference to phenomena outside of the mind. I'm a little bit hesitant about applying this to consciousness. I mean, to go back to the problem of consciousness, I mean, I, I kind of agreed with pretty much a lot of the problem as Michael articulated it. I mean, I, I phrase it slightly differently. So the core of the problem for conscious, of consciousness for me is that physical science works with a purely quantitative vocabulary, whereas consciousness is an essentially qualitative phenomenon, just in the sense that it involves qualities. If you think about the redness of a red experience or the smell of coffee or the taste of a lemon, you can't capture these kind of qualities in the quantitative language of physical science. And in fact, this was well understood by the founder of physical science, Galileo. Right? So Galileo only ever intended physical science as a partial account of reality. He hoped that it could capture the quantitative mathematical features of reality but he never dreamt that it could capture the qualities of consciousness, which he believed resided in the soul. So I think, you know, physical science, because of the limits of its vocabulary, um, can never give us a complete account of consciousness. It can never capture these subjective qualities. However, and this is, I don't know, maybe where I, I start to part company with Michael, my, my starting point is we know that consciousness is a real phenomenon, right? Each of us, it, it is not publicly accessible. You can't look inside my head and see my feelings and my pain. But each of us knows, un, you know, it's uncontroversial. Each of us knows that it's real. So it has to, it has to be integrated into our scientific picture of the world somehow. Now, if, if we agree if physical science is not up to that task and it was never designed for that task, I think we need to look to other paradigms of scientific explanation. So I think maybe we'd part company at that point. So you don't call yourself a mysterian regarding consciousness? No, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm open to that. I take mysterianism seriously as a, as a theoretical possibility. I mean, if you think we are, we've evolved through natural selection, then you know, it's, it might not be surprising if, if we don't have access to all of you know, nature's mysteries. In fact, you know, if, we've evolved, if, sorry, if we've evolved to survive rather than do science, you might think it's surprising that we can do as well as we can. But I guess I'm inclined to think, you know, why, why would you go for mystery if there are other possibilities? Of, so I'm inclined to think there are other scientific paradigms on the table that can potentially give us a, a, a complete account, an intelligible account of consciousness. So I'm a, a proponent of the view known as panpsychism um, mm-hmm. as an alternative scientific paradigm for explaining consciousness. So, so I, I, I guess my point is give that a go. And if that doesn't work out, so I guess I think, I guess I think there's, th- th- there are good reasons to think physical science can never give us a complete account of the mind as, you know, it's never been what it's designed to do. But I think there are other non non-physicalist uh, modes of scientific paradigms. Try them out. Yeah. If nothing works, then we can be mysterians, I guess. that's. Philip, can you please explain to our listening audience what panpsychism is? Sure. So I like to introduce as follows. I think, you know, we've been trying for many decades now to explain consciousness in terms of utterly non-conscious processes in the brain and we've got we've made very little progress on that uh, at least on the central problem of consciousness so the pan, the panpsychist proposes proposes an alternative research program rather than trying to explain consciousness in terms of non-consciousness we try to explain complex human and animal consciousness 
in terms of simpler forms of consciousness, simpler forms of consciousness that are then postulated to exist as basic, basic aspects of matter. So, so that's the, the basic research program. Does that relate to Noni's work, or was it Julio? To I don't know how to pronounce his first name. Uh, Tononi. Julio. Julio Tononi. Julio Tononi. Yeah, I mean, there are connect. There are connect- so, so panpsychism. You know, it sounds a bit wacky, but I mean, when I first started applying for jobs, like uh, twelve years ago, and people told me, people who had a lot of you know respect, who told me to keep panpsychism secret, secret, because you know really? it's it's not very credible. But in the last five or ten years. You know, in academic philosophy, this has gone from being a position that's kind of laughed at to be, you know, to a lot of philosophers thinking it, it is our, perhaps our best hope for an intelligible solution to the problem of consciousness. Largely because, I mean, the, the influence of the rediscovery of some very important work in the 1920s by um, the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the scientist Arthur Eddington that has sort of been rediscovered and causing a lot of interest in academic philosophy. A lot of my work is bringing together the literature there. But also there's this in neuroscience, one of the leading uh, neuroscientific theories of consciousness, integrated information theory, does have panpsychist implications, at least in the sense that it predicts that consciousness is more widespread than we ordinarily take it to be. And, and it also has arguably um, you know, a lot of empirical confirmation. Um, yeah. I, I think there is a lot of empirical confirmation in terms of the uh non-hard problem just in terms of the neural correlates view in the sense that like you know i mean it's interesting what have we learned from the neuroscience well for one it's interesting that the cerebellum doesn't really play much of a role in consciousness and it's really kind of our higher order cerebral cortex functions and the one network that seems to be Mm -hmm. particularly associated with consciousness my colleague daniel Bohr has done written a book on this called the ravenous brain i don't know if you read it linking the frontal parietal brain network to Consciousness mm-hmm. and the frontal parietal brain network is associated with um, with intelligence, general intelligence, you know, like IQ tests with concentration, but really integration, you know, like really the ability to integrate all the area. It's like the executive yeah. area, yeah. although there's no specific area, like, you know, it's no homunculus, but, you know, it yeah. seems to be able to serve a coordination function. So there does seem to be something there with integration. Sure. Yeah. Michael, I wanted to ask your thoughts, you know, so we make sure we include you in this conversation. (laughs) Just putting that out there, do you think that like, even if we have a complete understanding of how consciousness arises from an emergent property of integration, is that going to satisfy you from a final perspective? Well, it it depends what problem we're trying to solve. That would be the so-called easy problem, which doesn't really seem easy at all. But the fact that someone like Christoph Koch... (laughs) In, yeah, easier. My friend Christoph Koch, who I know well and have followed for the last 25 years, you know, he seems to be working toward really a deeper understanding of the neural correlates of consciousness. I do note that recently he's embraced this panpsychism idea through Tononi's uh, ITT. Okay, so that gets my attention. Uh, so it just depends on, you know, if, if that research paradigm is successful, what, what problem is that solving? Uh, if it solves this problem of not what it's like to be something, this qualitative experience. To me, that just seems like a conceptual problem, not a scientific one. But if it's, you know, what are the neural correlates of consciousness? How does consciousness come online or, or something like that as brains become larger and more complex? Then that seems completely doable. And so, for example, if we came back 500 years from now, 1,000 years from now, and, and looked at what neuroscientists were doing, you know, it could be entirely be, you know, oh, we've completely solved that problem. Would they be able to say, oh, the mind-body problem, oh, yeah, that's not, we solved that 300 years ago, that's no problem, and here's the answer. That's possible. You know, it could be we're just approaching it the wrong way, or 
or but what the Mysterians say is that the limitation is in our conception language, the size of our brain, how our brains are structured. And that if we encountered an ET from wherever, uh, Vega or something, and, and they had a brain, you know, 10 times the size of ours, it, it could be, you know, the mind-body problem is no problem at all. They, they completely figured that out. And uh, so, you know, by Mysterian, we just mean, you know, for our brains at this moment, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's a good question, Michael, is, you know, what are we trying to do here? What is the question? I mean, the way I think about it is what we want is that, an intelligible explanation of how consciousness fits into our scientific story. We know it's real. We know it's real. So it, it must fit in somehow. And so the question is, how does it fit in? I think there are, you know, what most people think, oh, the only scientific way to do it is to account for it in, in terms of physical science, in terms of, you know, we just keep doing neuroscience. I mean, so there's this standard line people say, you know, Okay, the hard problem is hard, but if you look at the great success of physical science and explaining more and more of our universe, then you know that ought to give us confidence that we'll one day crack the problem of consciousness. If we just carry on with kind of standard neuroscience, but I've got a slightly different take on on the history of science. You know, in, I argue in my book that the reason physical science has done so well is because Galileo kicks things off by taking consciousness outside of the domain of um, scientific inquiry. And he thereby gives physical scientists a more manageable task, right? Roughly the task of constructing mathematical models for predicting the behavior of matter. And that project has gone really well and it provides really useful information, right? If you can predict with great accuracy how matter behaves, then you can manipulate the world and have a wonderful technology. So that's gone really well, but it was never designed to account for the subjective qualities in our immediate awareness. It was designed to predict behavior. And so when I just don't buy it all these arguments, oh, it's done really well at predicting behavior, so it's going to explain consciousness. It, it was never designed to do that. I think if Galileo was to time travel to the present day and hear about this hard problem of consciousness, he'd say, you know, of, of course you can't give a physical account of consciousness. I designed physical science to predict behavior to, for quantities, not qualities. So oh, I think, you know, we're going, we're going through a phase of history where we're sort of so blown away by the success of physical science that we've forgotten that it was always intended as a, as a limited project of predicting behavior. Well, hold on, hold on a second, because like there's a whole wide swath of psychologists that primarily rely on the qualitative method of analysis. Let's not yeah. like hate on them. Absolutely. You know? absolutely. <laughs> there's insight and understanding that can be had, even descriptive, you know, descriptive understanding through fully understanding the experience of an individual. Well, clinical could be one example, but you know, there's a lot of humanistic psychologists who, well, a lot of them are clinicians, but some of them aren't were, and just others even working in other fields like social work, et cetera. There are some social science, like sociology, some of them consider themselves social scientists, you know, where they try to extrapolate from a deep quality of analysis of something. And there are, there are actually quantitative methods that help you like code and, you know, understand patterns and qualitative data. You're completely right. I, I, I've oversimplified. One always has to sort of overgeneralize to get the general picture out and then you, you fine tune the details. Um, yeah, I think what I mean by physical science, I'm not talking about science. I'm talking about a very specific understanding of physical science, that aspect that has a purely quantitative vocabulary. I mean, it's most exemplified in physics, which is basically mathematics and maybe some causal mm-hmm. notions. I think neuroscience is, is not too far away from that. So, so I suppose what my view is you, you cannot fully account for the qualities of consciousness in that kind of vocabulary. 
But of course, I mean, there, there are sciences that, you know, have their data asking people what they're feeling or whatever. Right. <laughs> to that extent, to that extent, the data is conscious. Psychology, certainly. But my, yeah, my point is, look, there's a lot of people for many decades now, the dominant view is still, no, we've just got to keep doing neuroscience <laughs> and we'll explain consciousness in a purely quantitative language of neuroscience. I think that project, we've never got anywhere with it. It's not what physical science was designed for. And I think there are just conceptual problems with it. So, but that doesn't mean we can't account for consciousness scientifically. Mm. And I think that what the hope of the panpsychist research program that's very much in sway now is that we can at some point give an intelligible account of human and animal consciousness in terms of, in terms of more basic forms of consciousness mm. that are then postulated to exist as, as basic constituents of matter. At least give that a go. Yeah, uh, a couple points on this. The when I mentioned uh, clinicians here, I was thinking of the recovered memory movement, and mm. what became clear there was the difference between experimental psychologists and clinical psychologists. And so, if you're a clinician, you have a patient, a client, they're trying to explain, you know, why he or she f- feels depressed or is overweight, can't sleep, whatever the symptoms are that they're there for, and they identify something in their past. I think, you know, I, I was molested as a child. Now. Pretty soon that becomes a truth for them in their head. That is the explanation for my malaise. And for the clinician, the clinician is not there to determine what really happened. It's just that's the truth for my client. And if I get results and they feel less depressed, then I'm successful. But at some point, the problem steps out of the clinician's room when, say, the person being accused of being the molester is arrested and charged with a crime. And that's what happened in the 90s. And that caused a lot of people great harm. And so we saw the difference there. It's, it's not okay to just say it's my truth, full stop, when it has consequences for other people's realities. Okay, so that's one point. Second point, uh, back on the physical sciences and Galileo. Now, if, you, if the original Mysterians, Colin McGinn and, and Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky in particular, has a, it's a great video lecture he has at MIT where he's talking about, he, he's, he starts it at Newton. And that Newton's identification of gravity and his statement, I feign no hypotheses. In other words, what is gravity? I don't know. It's kind of an occult thing. And my mathematics is just telling us what planets do and objects do when they're near mm-hmm. each other and their mass and so on. But if you ask me, but what is it? I don't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, gravity is the tendency for objects to attract one another. Well, why do objects attract one another? Because of gravity. Well, we, you know, this is a tautology. So now we're getting, Philip, at, at the problem you identified. It's from a quantitative to a qualitative. Yeah, but what is it? Now, you know, someone like Kip Thorne at Caltech, who, who deals with, you know, general relativity and so on, he'll tell you it has something to do with time, and he goes into Einstein and equations and so on. I, I'm not sure I really understand it. But that almost starts to shift into that, well, it does, into that sort of qualitative features of the natural world that maybe the kind of science we've been doing is not equipped to fully understand with the words that we use. Michael, I really appreciate those two points, and I definitely want to hear what Philip has to say to that. Just really quickly, I was, you know, when I was making my point, and I wasn't necessarily thinking about clinicians, the example that might be helpful here, I was thinking of like Herb Simon and Newell, like when they first kind of started this cognitive revolution, I mean, they used cognitive modeling techniques or think aloud protocols where they asked large groups of participants to think aloud while they were solving a problem, for instance. And we learned a lot about the fundamental principles of cognition through that sort of subjective, one could say a more subjective approach. So I was more thinking about that along those kind of lines. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah, well, in, back in the 19th century, uh, Alfred Russell Wallace broke with Darwin 
on this subject. He was the subject of my doctoral dissertation. I wrote a biography of him, and he argued if natural selection is definitely true, and but why would it create brains so large and so capable of experiencing things like mathematics, aesthetic appreciation, art, music, and so on? What's the purpose of that? Why do you need that? I mean, having a chimp-sized brain is all you need for survival. Why do you need a brain four times that size? What would be the adaptive purpose of being able to function, of being able to do calculus, quantum physics, whatever that, not in his time, but any kind of mathematics or aesthetic appreciation? And Wallace carried that line of reasoning out where he concluded there has to be some kind of higher intelligence that put that spark in there. And Darwin said, no, no, we're not going that far. And uh, so, you know, this is a long process. As soon as you introduce natural selection in the formula, it's like, yeah, why would we be able to do this? This is an interesting problem. (laughs) And why are we the only ones to do it to this extent? (laughs) Can I link back to some of the the Chomsky stuff Michael was saying about that? So, I mean, I think... So I think this really connects to the the influence of of Russell and Eddington from the 1920s, which has recently been rediscovered in academic philosophy, which is you know causing a great deal of interest for this panpsychist model. Uh, so, so I mean, their starting point is very closely related to the Chomsky point there that so in the public mind, physics is giving us this complete description of reality. But what Russell and Eddington realise is that when you it becomes apparent upon reflection that physical science is confined to telling us what matter does. You know, if you think about what physics tells us about an electron, tells us it has mass and charge. And these characteristics are, are characterized completely behavioristically. You know, charge is characterized in terms of attraction, repulsion. Gravita- uh, mass is, is characterized in terms of gravitational attraction and resistance to acceleration. So physics tells us what the electron does, how it behaves. It tells us nothing about what philosophers like to call the intrinsic nature of the electron, how the electron is in and of itself. So this is sometimes called the problem of intrinsic natures, you know, like that physical science tells us nothing about the intrinsic nature of matter. It tells us great information about how it behaves, but it doesn't tell us how it is in and of itself. So there's, there's this sort of huge hole in our scientific picture of the universe. Now, the genius of Russell and Eddington, though, and this is where it becomes non-Mysterian, or sort of moves beyond mysterialism, they said, well, look, their genius was to relate that problem to the problem of consciousness, right? The problem of consciousness is we're looking for this place for consciousness. We know it exists. Where where can we put it? The problem of intrinsic nature says we don't know the intrinsic nature of matter. So Russell and Eddington said, well, put put consciousness in the hole. We've got this hole. (laughs) We need to find a place for consciousness, put consciousness in the hole. So the idea is there's just matter right? That's all there is, just matter, nothing supernatural. Physical science tells us what it does, how it behaves, but its intrinsic nature is constituted of forms of consciousness. So this gives us a beautiful, simple, uh, parsimonious way of integrating consciousness into our scientific picture of the world. And it, it gives us a way of it that avoids the problems of materialism on the one hand, the problems of dualism on the other. So that's the kind of research program, the kind of general picture of how consciousness fits in. Uh, that is is becoming attractive to a lot of philosophers and some neuroscientists now. And yeah, don't need to be mysterious. (laughs) We can, we can be Russell Eddington panpsychists. So let's, (laughs) let's transition to free will from that point. And let's see if we can apply that same logic to free will and God as well. We'll see. And Michael, you know, if you had any points you want to respond to that, maybe you could fold it into the free will discussion. We can, yeah, great. We can move on. Great. So you write in your article that we live in a deterministic universe and still we act as though we have free will. Could you elaborate a little bit more, Michael, what you meant by that? Yeah, so it's kind of tease apart the different elements of this. 
you can say free will is an illusion, uh, but it's a great illusion. It works. It's a, it's a useful fiction, as uh, the French philosopher Hans Weiner called it. It certainly feels like I have free will. I'm making choices. That's what it, it seems like intuitively. But that would still be the determinist position. I'm arguing uh, along the lines of what Dan Dana argues in Freedom Evolves, that we are complex enough organisms that there are so many variables at work. And the fact that we are part of the causal net ourselves by being aware of these vectors that are influencing us and pushing us around to the point where we can affect them back, we can push back. And so even though it's all determined, we live in a determined universe, being part of the causal net and being aware and self-aware of the causal variables influencing us, we can do something about it. And out of that emerges something like volition or choice or whatever word you want to use. And, and part of the problem here, again, is language. You know, I start using active verbs <laughs> and I hear determinists using active verbs all the time as if, you know, they're, they're making these choices because that's what it feels like. And I think it's OK to do that because that isn't, in essence, what we're doing. So the example I use, uh, say, I'm aware that in the late afternoon, I'm going to get a craving for chocolate chip cookies. So ahead of time, make sure I don't have any in the house. I'm not going to you know, be going to the store at that time or the shop that has cookies or something. I'm aware of these influences on my behavior that you know, future Shermer is going to do this. So current Shermer can affect the variables that I know is that he knows is coming or I, who, he, me. <laughs> <laughs> it's tricky. Uh, so something like that. But again, I think I put in the Mysterian category because we're, we're delimited by the language we use, these words. If it's determined, how can you be free? Well, not really free, free. There's no, not libertarian free will. Just, there's no homunculus. But even if there were, you know, then, then there'd have to be a mini me inside me and then a mini me, mini, mini me inside mini me inside me and so on. And that doesn't solve the problem either. So to me, it's just one of these conceptual head scratchers. The fact that now I'm not a philosopher, so from an outsider, to me, it seems like a problem like this that that's been talked about for 2,500 years and there's no consensus, like there's no climate consensus committee for free will that says, yeah, 97% <laughs> yeah. of philosophers agree that compatibilism is true or determinism is true or whatever. I've even seen these surveys that I cite, that big one that um, David Chalmers did in 2009 yeah. of you know, 3,600 professional philosophers, graduate students, professors, and so on. And compatibilist, compatibilist position was 59% embraced the compatibilist position. And then the next category was determinist, and, and the lowest one was libertarian free will. So to me, that tells us, I mean, we don't do this by vote, but on the other hand, it does give us a, a clue that there's something else going on here. When the smartest people who know the most about a subject can't agree even remotely, there's no general consensus like there is in, say, climate then there's something else wrong with the language or the concept itself that's not going to get us there. Hmm. I want to thank you for posing that problem so articulately. You brought this mini-me idea, and what if you're not thinking about that in the right way? So it seems like the brain is like something that does seem to be a consensus in the field of cognitive neuroscience is that the brain is, is hierarchically organized in a sense. So that yeah. there are not all mini-yous, maybe I would well, I just want to put out there and then let's discuss this. Not, you know, we are comprised of multiple subcomponents, but there are some, like we talked about earlier, the prefrontal parietal brain network that is higher level coordination. So there is, perhaps gives you more free will than lower order ones. Maybe we can actually rank in a hierarchy, like which subcomponents are more, allows us more degrees of freedom than others. I'm just putting this out there and we'll see what you guys think mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I guess, I guess what you're both doing is, is trying to make sense of compatibilist notions of free will. And maybe we should get clear on, on, on this distinction. Um, 
I mean, actually, one thing I'd like to say, Masai, I think this problem, to my mind, is very different from the problem of consciousness in, in the sense that I think, as I've said many times, I think we know for certain consciousness is real. So there's a genuine phenomenon there that we have to account for somehow. But um, I don't think we have that same kind of certainty with free will, right? It, it certainly seems as though um, we're free. You know, it seems as though certain of my decisions are completely up to me, you know, in the sense that I'm not compelled to act by prior causes. But that could be an illusion, right? It could be that I, it feels as though I'm free, but I'm not. However, I'm personally not persuaded, and this is, as Michael points out, I'm in the minority among philosophers. I'm personally not persuaded by any of the um, scientific or philosophical arguments against free will or for determinism. And so I'm a tentative believer, not only in free will, but in free will of the particularly strong libertarian kind. So the idea is here, the idea here is that certain of my choices are completely up to me in the sense that they're not determined by prior causes. I don't think there is, I've never seen the scientific case that the brain is, I mean, you know, I mean, I think, I think just to finish this up, I think there, you know, there are certain, in any philosophical paradigm, there are certain convictions that are defended on the basis of evidence. And then there are certain kind of dogmas that are just generally accepted as part of the zeitgeist. I think determinism is like that. I've never seen a peer-reviewed scientific paper proving that the, um, the brain is a deterministic machine. I mean, there's, no, there's certainly no consensus among, yeah. you know, there isn't a consensus in the research literature. So I don't see, so whereas Michael, and Scott also seems to be saying this, you know, assuming most, the compatibilist says, okay, science has shown we're not free in the, in the libertarian sense, but we can try and work out some kind of watered down notion of freedom. And I think that's what, that's what Dennett does, for example. But I'm still not persuaded. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm open-minded, but I'm still not persuaded that there isn't evidence that I'm not free in, in the sense we ordinarily take ourselves to be. So, yeah, that's my position on I really appreciate it. Wow, you're the, so you're the first professional philosopher I've met who embraces <laughs> real free will. Tentatively, right? Tentatively. Tentatively. You're, well, you're open. I, I, you're if, open to it. If there were scientific, if someone showed me, if, you know, like you said, climate change is a great example. You know, it, I, I believe in climate change because there's a consensus in literature. If there emerged, if someone showed me a, a peer-reviewed scientific paper proving the brain is a, is a, is a uh, deterministic mechanism, I'd give it up in a second. But I don't, I don't see that. The determinist then would counter... Well, but, you know, all thoughts are just, you know, neurons firing, just chemical swapping across synaptic gaps. It's a, it's a mechanical system. It's a physical system. It's a, it's a Galilean Newtonian clockwork system. What's your response to that? So, you're, well, in other words, your thoughts are just, they're just generating there. You have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. I think this maybe gets back to the consciousness issue. So, my view, my pans, Russell Eddington panpsychist view is, does just the brain, right? But physical science doesn't tell us what the brain is. It just tells us what it does and what its parts do. My mind is at least part of the intrinsic nature of my brain. So, yeah, my, yeah, my brain is the only stuff. You know, there's nothing supernatural. There's no souls. My brain is the only thing doing stuff. But my conscious mind is part of the intrinsic nature of my brain. So I think they're consistent. I'm just not persuaded that there is any scientific evidence that the brain as a whole is a deterministic system. Yeah. Well, this was Benjamin LeBay's, you know, experiments where, you know, some part of your brain is making this decision for you before your conscious part of your brain is even aware of it. Isn't that, that sounds like a deterministic. Well, right. That's system. consistent with the hierarchical organization of the brain, right? Yeah. 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 So Libet's experiments are, you know, really interesting. So Libet, so, so, so these yeah, experiments yeah, yeah. where he, these are the classic 
experiments that are appealed to in this context. So he took um, you know, a group of subjects and asked them to make a free choice under experimental conditions. And it was always something trivial like um, you know, whether to press a button on the left rather than the right or something. And then he wanted to ascertain the time at which the free choice happened. So he got them looking at a clock on the wall and they had to note the time at which it happens. At the same time, he has them hooked up to an EEG and he can, so he can measure the time at which the brain initiates the decision. So the shocking result was that the brain initiates the decision on average 300 milliseconds before the subject consciously recalls making it. So people say, you know, this is, shows that free will is an illusion, that um, you know, the brain decides what we're going to do before we consciously decide. Uh, so I think these are fascinating experiments. I think the conclusions are grossly exaggerated. Yes. I mean, one problem that Daniel Dennett, in fact, is points to is um, there's, a, there's a much more simple interpretation of the data, namely that we systematically get wrong the times of our decisions, at least in these highly artificial circumstances. You know, what these mm-hmm. subjects were asked to do is make a decision and simultaneously note the time you made it. And, you know, maybe we can't do that. But um, can I just, just, just finally, sorry, I'm talking too long, but just the broader point on the Libet stuff and similar experiments is that the free decisions in inverted commas that he focuses on are not the free choices that anyone cares about, right? They're just arbitrary things like pressing a button on the left rather than the right. Yeah. You know, what proponents of free will care about are rational decisions like you know, whether to take a job, whether to get married, whether to betray your friend these decisions where we freely choose from among rational considerations. And the liberal experiments have nothing to say about it. So the best they show that the conscious mind can't, you know, instigate a completely random, meaningless action, but it doesn't show, anything, you know, who cares about that? So, yeah, yeah. so that's what I think. And I think Roy Baumeister has done a good job showing we have this little wiggle room, at least, even when our subconscious may make a decision, then there's also like, you know, there's like subconscious decisions and conscious decisions, you know, like, even though like all my computations have told me like this is the one for me to marry, there's still this like conscious decision I can say, well, despite how I feel about this and despite, you know, what my subconscious has computed for me, you know, like I'm not going to, I'm going right, to continue right. dating, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Libet yeah. uh, in his final book before he died, he, he declared himself a compatibilist. He rejected hard determinism, uh, even, even though his own research is cited by determinists. Uh, although, as I point out uh, in uh, my book, The Moral Arc, that there's also free won't. Uh, later experiments <laughs> added elements where you could push another button at the last minute and change your mind and override the initial impulse. Like, ooh, I'm going to really push like A, that. but no, no, I'm going to push B. No, nope, right. no, nope, no, nope, back to A. Oh, no, B. And so what's going on there? Or as I like to ask, say, what's the difference between us who are not uh, drug addicts and the drug addict who just cannot control or the alcoholic can't take the drink or whatever? Is that person just more determined than you and I are determined? And what would that mean to say more determined or less determined? So there's a scale there, some kind of quantitative scale of determinism. In that case, that's not the right word. Wow, Michael, you just opened up such a can of worms. (laughs) If you really like, if our brains compute all the real deep implications of your point, that would obviously be a conversation that would last days and months and years, probably a lifetime. But well, okay, what if you bring in the genes into the picture here, right? Like, well, we know for a fact that some people have, through heredity, a more difficult time resisting certain temptations than others. I think that's a fair statement to say. It shouldn't be particularly yeah, controversial yeah, to say that. Yeah. So, it's easier for you to, you know, like for one person, it might obviously, like, I'm not going to get addicted. Like, I don't have, you know, like that strong urge to do that. But 
So that do they have more free will to do that than person B who might come from a right. long family of alcoholism? Right. So, I mean, maybe these are not the right words. We're using the wrong language. You mentioned Roy Baumeister. You know, he and John Tierney have that great book, uh, Willpower. Yeah. So he, you know, it's just chapter after chapter of what you can do about this. And here's what the research shows about how you can gain control over your thoughts. Well, what are you doing when you do that? You know, you can say, well, it's all determined. Yeah, but some part of me is jumping into, in, so, into the middle of the causal chain and saying, no, no, I'm going to move down the left path instead of the right path because I'm aware if I go down the right path, I'm going to become an addict or a cigarette smoker or an alcoholic. And so I know if I do, I can move down the left path. Now, the determinist would say, yeah, but you didn't have a, you know, some particle that did something a billion years ago, you know, ultimately got into your neuron and, and made it fire this way instead of that. I don't know. But to me, it's still a kind of volitional action. You know, but I feel like mechanicalistically, we can kind of understand that, you know, like the BA-10, like you said, like, where is it? I'm like, I'd say like, basically it's the BA-10. Like, and then of course the question is, well, what is instigating that? But genes do have some sort of blueprint for the extent to which these brain activations are going to be easily activated. You know, like psychopaths, when you scan their brains, there are these certain subcortical regions that are almost dark. You know, like they're just not activating by default at all. So I think it's interesting to think how genes, not deterministically, mm-hmm. but probabilistically, mm-hmm. influence whether or not you're going to go a lifetime with a lot easy default activations of certain brain areas that exert control in a top-down way on certain functions. Okay, here's my final thought experiment to, good, uh, good, good. for the hardcore determinist. Okay, so the hardcore determinist is married, happily married, and uh, goes to a conference and meets this attractive person, and they, and they end up with a hookup, and the spouse finds out you know, when they get home, that, and he said, well, now listen, see, honey, my thoughts come from where I, not, I know not where, my genes, you know, my neurons were firing, and you know, I just really have no volitional choice in the matter. It's all determined. You know, could he even finish the argument before the hand comes across and slaps the face? Sure. You know, <laughs> could you have done otherwise? Yeah, you could have done otherwise, and you better not do it again. Okay. Well, so <laughs> yeah, I want to be very clear, Michael. Culpability is not the same as the you know explanation. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, but the hardcore determinist would say you're not really culpable. Oh, but well, I'm not case, a hardcore determinist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I guess I'd agree. I guess if I, if I wasn't a libertarian, if I was persuaded that empirical is false, I'd be some kind of compatibilist rather than a hard determinist. And in, you know, in either case, whether there's libertarian free will or not, for all the reasons you've both been saying, there's there's going to be a really complicated story here. You know, a difference between basic desires, what you want to do, and higher order desires, what you want to want to do. Yeah. It's quite attractive to characterize the addictive person in that way that they want the cigarettes that they don't want to want. And there's going to be some story we can tell there about something like freedom. So, so I think actually the, the libertarian and the compatibilists will have a lot in common, a, a lot can hold a lot in common, and there's going to be this kind of complicated story that, that can be agreed on. Okay. But I'm just not persuaded that the, uh, you know, I think we do think about many of our choices in the libertarian way, and I don't yet find any scientific reason to, that otherwise. to give that up for tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah. in 15 minutes, do you think we can, t- we can solve God, the existence of God? Oh, yeah. to- totally. No problem. Absolutely. <laughs> now, small topic. Small topic. <laughs> you're a panpsychist. What is it? Does that mean you're necessarily also a pantheist? Like, is Absolutely that the not. No. no. Okay, good. No, I mean, panpsychism is, you know, and this is the unfortunate thing that, you know, it has these unfortunate cultural connotations, cultural associations 
a certain kind of new age thinking and stuff. And um, But, you know, I think you should judge your view on its explanatory power rather than its cultural associations. And it's panpsychism is intended as a, you know, a cold-blooded best explanation of consciousness. It doesn't have any necessary connection to anything supernatural or theological. Okay. On the topic of God, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I don't see why... I guess I wasn't persuaded by Michael's that we should be Mysterians about God. So I don't see why um, God isn't the kind of thing we can more or less straightforwardly offer evidence for and against. So I'm I'm actually agnostic because mm. I think there's very powerful evidence against the existence of God. And I also think there's very powerful evidence for the existence of God. Mm. So I think the jury's kind of out there. But so, uh, yeah, so... Um, so, so like yeah. in the Martin Gardner sense, I mentioned of uh, the arguments between theists and atheists. He, he said atheists have slightly better arguments, but only slightly. The theists have, they have good arguments, um, like the design argument, for example. Yeah, I guess I think the case against the familiar problem of evil, I think is the, the existence of evil and suffering is very strong evidence against the existence of God. I don't think religious philosophers have ever come up with anywhere near plausible no. explanations for why a loving God would allow those things to happen. And, and I think this problem has become worse since our moral awareness has progressed. So we now, for example, think of animal animals' interests as morally significant. And so this raises the question, you know, why would a loving God choose to create life through a horrific process of natural selection? But in terms of the, I mean, I, I am, this, you're going to disagree with me now, Michael. I think there is force to the argument for God from the fine-tuning of you know, this surprising discovery in the last 40 years, completely surprising that um, some of the numbers in basic physics are against improbable odds exactly as they need to be for life to be physically possible. So just to take one example from Martin Rees, uh, the strong nuclear force is 007 if it had been 0.006 or less, we'd just have a universe of hydrogen. If it had been 0.008 mm-hmm. or more, we'd, the hydrogen would have fused into heavy elements. In either case, we'd have absolutely no chemical complexity and therefore no life. So, <laughs> so God was a chemist? Well, I think... I think <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Like many scientists and philosophers, I think that this, this needs to be explained. But there seem to be two explanations. One is that... God created the universe and set those numbers in order to make a, life, a universe where life is possible. Or the other explanation, the multiverse hypothesis, there are a huge, perhaps infinite number of universes, which between them exemplify a large range of these numbers so that it becomes statistically inevitable that you'll get one with the, the right laws for life. Now, you know, the atheists say, oh, well, it must be the multiverse. And the theists say, oh, well, it must be God. You know, to my mind, these both sound like pretty crazy oh. hypotheses. And I don't think we're in a position, talking about things, you know, you, we're not in, I don't think we're in a rational position to decide one way or the other. So yeah. I, you know, I really? think the jury's we're not settle. We're not going to settle this in the next five minutes, once and for all. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we so you will. are a mysterian. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, a couple of things on that. Now, my physicist, cosmologist friends tell me that the multiverse idea was not conceived as an explanation for the fine-tuning, that it is derived from the equations, predictions of equations are this, there should be multiple universes of various kinds, the quantum kind or just the cosmological kind. And, and it is not just a fallback position by desperate atheists to explain why there can't be a God. This is what theists argue. Oh, you guys, what's the difference between the multiverse and God? 
But second, uh, Steven Weinberg makes this point, the Nobel laureate physicist, that, you know, we don't know enough to say that the fine tuning, you know, had to be this way or else, you know, it, it couldn't have come about. That we don't have a unified theory of physics that, expo- you know, unites the global general relativity and quantum physics, that there might be some underlying equations that then these fine tuned numbers end up falling into place perfectly well totally understandable because of this underlying principles that we don't yet understand. So before we draw any conclusions one way or the other, you know, we need to wait on how that works out. Now, the reason I, uh, I threw God into the Mysterian category, in part because of my numerous debates I've done over the years with theists, where they make these arguments like the fine-tuning argument, the cosmological argument for the first cause, prime mover, and all that, and, you know, I counter them. And at some point, or they go through prayers and miracles and the origins of consciousness, the origins of morality. When I counter all those arguments, I ask, you know, that there should be some way of measuring this deity and its actions in this world. And their ultimate fallback is God is outside of space and time. Okay, if God is not a natural being, then how would you know it exists? Uh, because we're natural beings. You can't measure something that's non-natural. In that sense, there's no such thing as the supernatural, the paranormal. These are just words we use to describe things we understand. And so my counterexample is like I said, my date, you know, there's this theory by Roger Penrose and Stuart Hameroff about consciousness arrives, derives, or instantiates through these microtubules inside neurons. Anyway, they have this long, complex theory, almost no neuroscientists accept it. But their idea is that, you know, these quantum effects happen in a warm environment like a brain in these microtubules. And when the wave functions collapse at a certain pattern of neural firing, it can leave my skull and go into your skull. So that this would explain mind reading, for example, or spooky action at a distance between minds. And okay, I don't believe any of this, but let's say this was true. And this would no longer make it ESP, paranormal, psychic power. It would just be a branch of quantum consciousness or something. It would just be a part of the natural world we didn't understand before and now we do. So essentially, we're eliminating paranormal supernatural explanations by incorporating them into the natural world. And so what we describe as God doing things or the characteristics of God, to me, if it's true, then it would just, God would just be part of the natural world. It would just be like a super advanced extraterrestrial intelligence. The analogy is if, you know, if I show a Neanderthal an iPhone, you know, this would be like I'm God, or, you know, I have this device that it's God-like. It's just any, like, like Clark's third law, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, or you could say God. So how would we know, and what do you mean by God? So therefore, it's a Mysterian. Anyway, that's how I ended up at that conclusion. Thank you for that, explaining why you got to that conclusion. You know, I want to think of this from an existential perspective for a second, because like the construct of God, I think, you know, evolved for, to serve a function, a good psychological function. You know, humans seem to have this deep need for a higher meaning or a sort of higher personal meaning for their lives and to think that there's a reason for all of this that we're going through, you know, that all the suffering as well as the joys. Do you think that like there's any sort of I'm asking both of you, do you think there's any sort of scientific finding, even if like the microtubules hypothesis is correct, that can speak or give hope to those existential concerns that humans have? That's, I mean, I think that links nicely to, to Michael's last point in a way that, you know, you might think the best explanation of the fine tuning is some kind of intelligent design or value involved in shaping the universe. I mean, an interesting case, um, Nagel, who we started off talking about, mm. his recent, his 2012 book that 
got really a lot of very critical reviews. He see, he takes the fine tuning and other things very seriously, but he doesn't believe uh, in God. He believes that the universe has some kind of inherent teleology or direction. Or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so, so it's not obvious just because we need, even if we do need to postulate something like that, and I'm not saying we do, it's not obvious that it would you know, satisfy our religious impulses right. or, or the kind of God we're looking for. Um, can, I, can I say a couple of things about the multiverse that, mm-hmm. that, that, that from in related or sorry, or absolutely. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So, but yeah, so, so no, I just really stimulated by these. So Michael's right that there is speculative support for some kind of multiverse, but one crucial point that often get over So two points though, two problems, one crucial point that often gets overlooked is that what you don't get from the physics is any grounds for thinking these different universes have different laws, right? That doesn't come out of the physics. And that's what you need in order to explain the fine tuning, because the mm-hmm. idea is there's all these different universes and that the relevant parameters in physics, you know, they, they have all different values. So it becomes statistically inevitable that you'll have a fine tuned universe. But actually, you can't get that out of the physics, so you need to go a little bit beyond the physics mm. to explain the fine-tuning. But the other point is, there is this big problem in the contemporary multiverse theory called the Boltzmann brain problem. I don't know how much we want to go. I mean, it's very just to put the essence. I think, of it, it, and I think physicists think of it as it's kind of a false prediction of the theory. The standard, the most scientific, according to the most scientifically supported version of the multiverse, Highly ordered universes like ours are incredibly rare, unbelievably rare. Even among the subset of universes with observers in, highly ordered universes are incredibly rare. In fact, so this is from Roger Penrose demonstrated that the most common kind of observer in the multiverse are these Boltzmann brains, these brains that just spontaneously come into being out of chaos and then and then go back into the void. So even amongst the set of universes with observers, our universe is highly unusual. And most physicists work, take that to be a disconfirmation of the standard multiverse. Or, you know, maybe the theory can be tinkered with, but it's, as it stands, it's, it's a strong prediction problem. So I sort of think actually both God and the multiverse have false predictions. Like mm. I, th- I think of the problem of evil as kind of a false prediction because mm. you, you, know, you, you think that the, the God hypothesis predicts that there'd be a much better world than we in fact have. So that's a kind of disconfirmation. The multiverse theory has this Boltzmann brain. So I, and again, I think they're kind of tied. Oh. You know? but, but even you if know? there is some, some sort of a designer or tinker um, that, that set the dials, in a way, the counter to that is well, the universe isn't very finely tuned for life. Life can exist, and particularly conscious life, almost nowhere. It's very, very rare environments in which this could happen. And as far as we know, so far, it's only happened once. It's yeah. probably not the case. But in any case, it would it would certainly take, by the natural processes of origins of life and, and evolution, billions of years to get to, to sentience and consciousness. So if a designer did this, you know, why set it up where it takes, so the universe is 13. 7 billion years old. Essentially, it takes, you know, what, 9 billion years to even get started. If there's some purpose to it or some design to it, it, it sure, certainly seems wasteful that, you know, 99.9% of the universe is not finely tuned for life. Absolutely. And, you know, 99% of the time of the universe is, you know, was completely wasted. And then finally, in the last 2000 years, Jesus comes and, and we're all saved. <laughs> well, okay. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, I, I can I just, I mean, I completely agree with Michael yeah. on that. I mean, yeah. I take that to be actually in a sense, part of the problem of evil and part of the false prediction of, 
of theism. But then there's the question is, well, is that a worse false prediction than the Boltzmann brain problem? And, and we've got it. I mean, I think most physicists say with the multiverse hypothesis, we're going to have to tinker with it to get rid of this Boltzmann brain problem. Mm. What a theist could say, I'm not a theist, I'm an agnostic, but what a theist could say is, well, let's tinker with the theistic hypothesis. So John Stuart Mill answered these kind of problems Michael's raising and the more general problem evil by saying, well, God isn't all powerful. Maybe God has limited power. So maybe, you know, the best expert, you look to the fine tuning and you explain the evil and suffering, the emptiness of the universe in terms of the limited powers of God. The problem, you know, a lot of dogmatic believers, the problem, you know, don't want to tinker with hypothesis. <laughs> so that's, that's one problem. So, so as I see it, you know, I think the fine tuning is a real problem. There are two explanations that both have pretty serious false predictions, but maybe they can be tinkered with so that they get around these predictions. I don't know. I think it's an interesting open question, but I don't think we should. I guess things are so polarized now, right? You've got either side not wanting to give any ground, you know, and I think this is because people like the comfort of certainty. You know, the atheists want to think, uh, you know, the religious people are sort of backward fools, because that gives you a kind of certainty, comfort. Of certainty. The theists want to think the atheists are sort of in denial. But, you know, I think we need to face up to the fact that, um, you know, there's a lot less certainty in these matters, libertarian free will, I think, than we ordinarily think. And, and certainly since the fine tuning, I think there's, there's a real question here that we, we, we should think about, and it's, it's very open. You know, if the laws of nature have built into them, some kind of teleology, which appears to be the case in the sense that you go from this kind of general gruel of an early universe where there's not much structure at all to what we have today, where there's a lot of structure. If you want to call that teleology, well, that's true. And that's the result of the laws of nature where you end up with these emergent properties that lead to more complex systems. You know, Gould used to make this point that in terms of like a purpose-driven universe, well, if you're at the left wall of simplicity, you can only go to the right and become more complex if you're going to do anything at all. So if you want to call that, you know, sort of a purposeful universe, fine, but that isn't what most people mean by God. Right. You know, they really anthropomorphize it. There's, there's this agent out there, advanced, super powerful agent. So again, yeah. what's the difference between that and a, a super advanced extraterrestrial intelligence that can genetically engineer organisms and, and create solar systems and, and even cause stars to collapse into black holes in, in the singularity, they create a new universe. Mm-hmm. Well, any entity that can create universes in life is God. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what Nagel means by teleology, he takes it to be a basic law of nature. There's some teleological laws, part of the basic laws of nature. So again, I think that is going beyond, you know, the standard scientific picture or, the, or you know, I mean, the theistic hypothesis I was entering with that there is some kind of actual designer. So, so I think that would be going beyond. You know, Freeman um, Dyson yeah. makes it, has this line in one of his books that, that drives atheists crazy, where it's almost as if the universe knew we were coming. <laughs> and, it's like, and I'm pretty sure he's, I don't know if he's an atheist, or, but an agnostic or something. And of course, Christians glom onto that. You see, even the physicist, the great Freeman Dyson <laughs> yeah. says, the universe knew we were coming. Uh, or Stephen Hawking says, then, then we'll know the mind of God. Oh, stop using those words. <laughs> so could we wrap up here? Uh, basically, we all know where Michael stands on these three things because he wrote the article and that was the inspiration for this chat today. Maybe we'll go, let me just say really quickly what I think. Yeah. Really quickly. Yeah, I've been then, dying to know what you think about it. Yeah, come <laughs> on, what's your stake well, a claim here? <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to, you know, I kind of like the spirit of possibility and openness that someday there will be a discovery. So I'm inclined to not say I, either of the three are final mysteries and to say, and I sort of have this belief that all will be revealed. 
Now, maybe we won't be conscious to know what was revealed, but I just feel like if humanity, and this might be a big if, but if humanity can last long enough and we can kind of advance our scientific technologies to a certain degree that is unimaginable today, which I think will be possible, you know, if we could fast forward like 2,000 years from now, I sort of have this intuition that all will be revealed and that will be like, mm-hmm. oh shit, like that's what it was. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, that's just my intuition. So, what's your conclusion there, uh, Philip, on these three? Well, that's, I think I share your hope. I think on, on consciousness is, you know, my main area of work. I think there is a positive research program that really, you know, could make work and is already starting to make progress. And I think, you know, we're held back by a sort of dogmatic attach, attachment to materialism, not too unsimilar to the dogmatism that Copernicus and Galileo faced. And I mean, I'm not comparing myself to, the, I'm to this was the, the views of Russell and Eddington. So I think there is a real positive proposal there that might work out. It might not work out. It might work out and we should give it a chance. Free will, I think we just don't know enough about the brain yet. And we, you know, we think we know more about the brain. And um, it, it is an empirical question. Ultimately, we will know enough about the brain to know whether free will is an illusion. And it might be. But I just don't think we're anywhere near knowing you know, that kind of detail about the hugely complex system that is the brain. And on God, I think before the 1970s, you should be an atheist. You know, God was, there was no sign of God in physics. And I think that's still with us because for 200 years, it just looked like God had been ruled out. But I think the surprising discovery, the fine tuning, I think that when you dispassionately think about that, I think that, you know, there is some force to that argument. But there's another explanation. And so, um, you know, I think we have to wait. I hope that this will be resolved. Maybe, as Michael said, maybe the fine tuning problem will go away as physics develops. Maybe we'll get more confirmation for the right kind of multiverse and, and then God will become ruled out again. But at the moment, I think we, uh, the dispassionate, unbiased uh, thinker ought to be sort of 50-50 in the matter. Oh, wow. Well, thank you guys uh, so much for this chat. And thank you, Michael, for writing that article to spur this conversation in the first place. Oh, you're welcome. This is great. Thanks for hosting this. It's really a good, good conversation. This is how we yeah. advance knowledge. It was great fun. It's great chatting. And anyone that wants to weigh in on these heavy topics, please uh, weigh in in the comments section. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of The Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.